Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Scholarly Communication, the podcast about how knowledge gets known. I'm Daniel Shea, your host for this Focus on the Scientific Journal. Right now, every scientist in the world is drafting a manuscript. It's in labs everywhere that progress is being made in the research, and it's in journals everywhere that progress is being made in the research. Researcher and writer, this is the whole scientist. The scientific journal is the venue for scientists, because the research article is the genre for scientists. The next questions and the attempts at answering those questions never appear in books. Journals are the only channels of advances in scientific knowledge. And to make a journal, it takes at least five, the executives, the editors, the reviewers, the readers, and of course, the authors. These same five make the interview guests on this focus here at Scholarly Communication. This focus invites the executives, the editors, the reviewers, the readers, and the authors to talk. Because these conversations by the people in the business, in the publication, and in the researching of science will make the next advances. These people care what one another thinks because only all five together can make known the knowledge of science. Today's guests are Joshua Schimmel and Carl Ritz, the editors-in-chief of Soil Biology and Biochemistry. Established in 1969, Soil Biology and Biochemistry is a monthly peer-reviewed journal currently being published by Elsevier. Soil Biology and Biochemistry publishes original, scientifically challenging articles of international significance. The journal wants to describe and explain biological processes occurring in soil, and major topics revolve around soil organisms, the ecology and biochemical processes that soil organisms mediate, the effects on the environment that soil organisms have, the interactions between plants and soil organisms. Soil biology and biochemistry has special interest in the applications of new molecular, microscopic, and analytical techniques for the understanding of organism populations and communities, and the journal serves as a platform for comments and arguments about often controversial aspects of life in the soil. So let's begin the conversation. Joshua Schimmel, Carl Ritz, Soil Biology and Biochemistry, Josh and Carl, 
Welcome to Scholarly Communication. Thank you. Hi. Thanks, Daniel. Hi, Carl here. One of the reasons that I've decided to begin this focus is that I want things to be better known, to become more transparent, because it's so clear to everyone that publication, writing are so central to the researching process. And I really feel that authors will submit better, editors will publish better, reviewers will decide better, and executives will manage better if they hear more from each other. So I suppose where I'd like to sort of kick things off today is, do you see there major areas where these different groups that I've identified might want to know more about each other? Hmm. Um, certainly, I think so, for sure. My impression is a lot of authors don't really understand who editors and reviewers are, particularly when they're starting out. And the editorial process can seem very opaque until you're used to it and have actually worked in it. Yes. And I think the other thing is that, um, again, as Josh says, when you're first starting out, you might be unaware that there are real human beings behind this process and not just some uh, publishing automaton. So that's something else that um, I often stress to my students when I'm first briefing them about this is if you have a human conversation with your editors and reviewers, you're more likely to have a uh, you know a human retort back and a much more effective way of developing the the, the science and the uh, improvement of what you're writing, which is also one of the aims of the of the process. We'll maybe talk about that a bit more later. Mm-hmm. Yes, definitely. And uh, the I suppose the 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 thing that really boggles me, I guess that's the only way I can put it, is why is it that this, uh, this, this, this journal publication area is so opaque to so many authors? Why is it that you would think that so many um, authors are in their labs or in the field putting together their research and not seeing that there are people just as well in their offices or in their homes, depending on the case, who are going over those manuscripts, who are making decisions based on all the kinds of things that we humans use to make uh, to base our decisions on. Um, I think because until you actually start moving up in your career ladder to a degree, starting getting to know the people who are actually the journal editors. Um, it's easy to, to not understand who those people are or that they are your peers and maybe even your friends. I've certainly had papers that have been handled by close friends of mine. Yeah, I think that the other thing is it's a, it's a key thing to understand in the, in the publishing pro- scientific publishing processes. It's based on peer review. And the, the key there is peer People may be able to be familiar with the fact that you know, they they have peers in their immediate environment who they talk to when they have departmental seminars, et cetera, et cetera. But that's just the very tip of the iceberg of the, the, the social process that occurs at a much larger scale when you're seeking to publish. So you're starting to have that dialogue with actually the global peer community. And I think, and this is something that's very exciting and satisfying about science is that as a practicing scientist, you are instantly connected actually to the entire global community. And you will be having various conversations with them um, over the years, principally via the publication process. And 
you know, there's a lot more to it than just that final paper when it eventually arrives. It's been through all sorts of, of discussions and improvements, etc. Use an interesting word there, the, the social process of science or the social process of publication. Um, the metaphor of conversation, which you also refer to as well, is uh, very often used by people who study the sociology of science. Um, it's really been more or less decided upon that knowledge in science is a consensus-based sort of knowledge. And it would seem that then very many authors aren't aware of this opportunity or the let's say, the dynamics involved in entering into such a consensus-based knowledge exchange or the conversational metaphor, if we want to take that, how that's done when it comes to really bringing your research out. Yes, I mean, the, the publishing process is, at one level, a highly formalized procedure. And of course, the, the, the concepts of peer review is to try and ensure that science that passes muster um, gets published. And I think Again, perhaps that's how many people see it initially. It's just it's just a formal process of reporting your science, but that's again that's just the just part of the story because, in fact, what you're seeking to do is yes, report your science and the information you've gleaned, but you also want to promulgate it. And you know, there's a difference between just writing a dry report that simply is results versus developing a narrative that is actually telling a story. Um, you know, not a not a fictional story, but it's uh, narrative is the word really mm-hmm. that serves to develop the science and the ideas, and that's where the innovations and advances come from. If all the, all that occurred was just data was published and that's the end of it, then I think science would soon grind to a halt. I wouldn't want to read those papers because then I'd have to figure out for myself what that data set means. And I don't have the time to do that as, as a reader. Uh, and so I agree entirely. I, I think where papers often fail is because they are doing too much of just reporting what they did and not doing enough of the interpretation and showing the readers what it really means. And that's what editors and reviewers are really looking for. So if we return to this conversational metaphor, then it would appear that there's at least a contingent of scientists out there who are just bad conversationalists. <laughs> they're, the people, they're the people who get lost in the weeds. And uh, was it Tuesday night or was it late earlier in the evening? And you want to actually just hear what happened and who did what and who or what went wrong, right? So well, – a lot of classic definitions of a scientific paper say it is a report of research. And, and I just think that whole, that model is just dead wrong uh, because that leaves out the interpretation and the extra value of the actual scientist's intellect into, well, why did you do that research and what do you think you learned out of it? I think the other metaphor to use is that of exploration. So again, rather than just going out there you know, and, and getting a, a, a collection of data, whatever else, the the process of writing up into a what Josh and I would call, you know, a, a considered and mature paper is that you then are exploring that mentally. And many of us find, you know, when you're writing things down and developing, this is the way that you can really sort things out. And then you run it by um, your peers and in the journal system you're running it by you know a, a global pool of peers 
Um, so it's scary, but it's also uh, can be extremely effective in terms of testing those ideas. And, and again, perhaps we, we can talk about reviewing and what makes good reviewing later. But again, you know, if reviewers are becoming fully engaged in that process and dialogue, then all sorts of sparky things happen. And then, um, you know, we, we get a lot more out of it. Yeah, I think many authors actually are sort of uh, afraid of the peer review system and they feel like it's just a gauntlet they have to run to get their paper into press. And and I look at it the opposite way. I mean, I think I do good science and I know I write well and no, and I have never written a paper that has not been improved through the peer review process. I rely on that to help sharpen my own thinking and my own writing. And so, you know, it's it's something we do for each other, not something we do to each other. Indeed, that, that is that is supposing, Josh, that you're you're having um, you have an effective review from a considerate and <laughs> from a considerate reviewer, as opposed to a, a you know someone who's perhaps not quite uh, approaching things in the way that with that we would prefer to see them. Occasionally, you do get uh, narky reviews, and they yes, I've be, had some of those too reviews yeah. where. I, wanted to cool down for five minutes before I, you know, submitted a, a, a snarky response. But my experience has always been that those are the exception and that most reviewers are providing useful input. And even when I do want to throw things at the wall after a review, I can usually see, okay, that guy may have had a point after all. <laughs> Indeed, they do. <laughs> my my rule of thumb would always be that if you know when you are when you are reviewing whatever you do before you submit the review, read it as if you were the recipient of this, and see if you're going to you know what what this is going to do, uh, because you will be receiving reviews from other people, and you know you should be setting the example. And this I brings think... in. Oh, go ahead. I, I was just going to uh, jump in on that because this brings in one of those major techniques for figuring out how to communicate. I mean, Carl, as you're saying, the reviewer to read it as if he or she was on the receiving end as the author. The author to write it as if he or she was already out there in the, as you call it, international world of scientists interested in their research topic, reading it and making use of it or not making use of it. So this this ability to sort of set yourself into other people's shoes to see things through other people's eyes would appear to be one of those central issues, wouldn't it? It'll make a huge difference if you if you start looking at it like this. Absolutely. I mean it's you know, perhaps people haven't thought about this, but as an author, you have a duty to be communicating your material cogently, intelligently, sensibly um, around that. It's not it's not the duty of the editors or the reviewers or the publishers ever to publish your paper because you've done it, you know? Well, one thing here too is that as authors, we often, you know, go through three or four, 23 drafts of our manuscripts before we submit them. As reviewers, we tend not to do that. You know, we tend to write our review and that means they're often going to be caught up in things that may not actually be quite clear to the authors. And some of the challenges and conflicts in the, in the interchange between authors and reviewers is because they're not being super clear and maybe not have really thought through that. Um, what is it that I'm trying to say? And is it truly clear to a reader who isn't already inside my head? 
This is one of those classic uh, difficulties that the writer faces. I mean, just as you uh, explained it, Josh, I mean, uh, draft number 34, right? I mean, you've been, you've been living with this paper for months now, if not years, and then you hand it in. And the thing that has to sort of occur to the author, or typically authors at that point, is all of your work in the lab, all of your thinking, and all that drafting shows up once and instantaneously in front of these people for an hour or so. Yeah, makes it hard because we run the what's called the curse of knowledge. You know what you know, they don't know what you know, and you're not may not even be sure who all is going to read this. And so often authors are unclear in ways that's not obvious to them. And this, these are things that editors and reviewers are looking for and are picking up on and usually are going to be trying to push authors, you know, to be clear about this because we don't have everything that's in your head. And authors sometimes, you know, seem like, well, but it's obvious, isn't it? It's like, no, it isn't. And this brings up one of those key terms, audience. Um, it, it, any uh, journal will talk about their target audience. Another clear audience is one of the members of the five that I talked about, and, and Carl has mentioned as well, the, the reviewers. So, I mean, you can be sure that the editors, the reviewers, and if you're so lucky, the readers of the journal are going to be seeing what you've written. I wonder if you could say a word or two as to how to think about these audiences. Um, perhaps we could start with the one uh, that we've been speaking about most so far, the reviewers themselves. Um, what is it that, to have in mind, upmost in, in your mind, when you're submitting and knowing that this, this manuscript is likely, not, it's not always going to be the case, but likely to be passed on to reviewers? I guess I'd say to remember that the reviewers are basically you. They're your peers, but you don't know who they are. And they probably don't know quite as much about your specific thing as, as you do. So I think some authors, you know, sort of write as if they're writing to their narrowest possible target audience. And so they're thinking very much about, you know, the people in their little lab group, as opposed to how many people could be interested in what I have to do. And those peers who are reviewing your paper are going to be in that wider community because there's a lot of material submitted and journal editors are always struggling to find reviewers. And so the chances are that some of them are going to be a little bit farther afield. And that way, they're actually a good spectrum of the people you hope might actually want to read your work. I think we should just temper that also with... Um do be very considerate about the journal that you are submitting this material to. So it's sort of one step back from what Josh was saying, because we ed we edit a specialist journal, soil biology and biochemistry. And so in the introduction to papers in that journal, you do not need to explain that soil <laughs> microbes are very important or nitrification is the oxidation of ammonia. That, you know, that's, that's well known. But if you're targeting a more general journal, then these sorts of things will need to be um, need to be put up front. So it's, it's, a, it's a balancing act. The golden rule there, please, please, all authors should read the scope, the aims and scope for the journal they're submitting to. Um, you may not be surprised that we receive manuscripts that are wildly out of scope um, for, for SBB. 
and it doesn't take long to, to deal with to deal with those. So again, you you should be tuning the language in in the paper to that scope, and also on the basis of the experience you have by seeing papers in the journal. That's also part of the part of the, the, the thing there. Yeah, that experience. Um, I wonder if that also can be used uh, by searching the journal with keywords that are identical or extremely similar to your own to get a feel for, well, how has the conversation, not even just internationally, but internationally in the um, soil biology and, and, and biochemistry um, readership developed? Where would I be stepping most uh, eloquently, let's say, into the trail of conversation? Does that seem like a valid approach to use the journal to try to figure out how to submit to the journal? Of course, because it is the one piece of true data you can look at to see whether this journal is the right place for your work. But I think that the problem is that too many authors, when they're thinking about publishing a paper, they're thinking about their professional needs. I need to get a paper into a high impact factor journal to build my career. And that doesn't work very well because journals are for readers. They're not for authors. And editors work for the readers. We don't work for the authors. So you need to figure out how to give value to the reader and not just, I need to get the paper into you know, a, a, a journal with impact factor of four or five or 20 or whatever. And that's one reason why I think people submit papers too soon without having really thought them through and really developed the story. And often to journals that are not quite appropriate. Yes, I mean, again, this imperative to publish um, issue, is, you know, throughout our careers, we've seen that increasing um, all the time. And again, it goes back to the way the system is evolving versus the way that Josh and I see, you know, what we consider to be an effective scientific system. And there's a little bit of, um, little bit of tension going on there. We certainly see lots of premature uh, manuscripts. Um, and that's, I think I said, that's just part of the trend of the this this publish or perish regardless syndrome that's um, that's becoming more pervasive. And that would be another one of those clear signs that the sort of conversational basis or more more objectively, the consensus basis of how knowledge is produced in the scientific community is not really being fully understood or it's being sort of put second priority to, as Josh, you say, these uh, serious career issues, right? I, I need a promotion. I need my postdoctor fellowship. I need this or that. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, exactly. And one thing I find really odd is that the pressure for getting the right journal. And in fact, as a reader, journals almost are unimportant now because I can do a literature search, find a paper, download it, read it, dump it into my citation manager, cite it in a paper, and never really pay attention to where it was published. Now, that's really different than back before the internet era when you went to the library and you flipped through tables of contents of specific and a limited suite of journals. So it used to matter where you published. Now, for a reader's point of view, it really doesn't matter very much. But for authors, it's become ever so much more important to hit the numbers. So again, that's thinking from 
the author and and the author's boss's perspective rather than how does this actually advance the scientific community and yeah. a good paper will be found in red i think this so again the, the sort of the modern twist on the the journal as an identity amidst this homogeneity that the search engines provide so what's happening here is that you're tending to get the the ethos, the, the scope, the ethos, and the kind of personality with a small p of the editorial boards and their the peer review community they use. So it's about to you know what characterizes soil biology and biochemistry paper versus a scientific reports one. Um, so again, interesting sort of social twist on the way things are developing there. So if I understand right, then you would say. Scientific reports being one of the mega journals, if you like, and um, a highly specialized journal like Soil Biology and Micro um, and, and and Biochemistry, excuse me, would have then very different a very different ethos, you would say, because when you're entering into the SBB, you're thinking more along the lines of um, the you would have the character of the journal in mind. Would You would perhaps even be capable of um, not guessing at, but being aware of the circle of reviewers who would be involved because of their interest also in the special topics that are published there. Whereas in scientific reports, I mean, this is just impossible, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, a really important point that you raised earlier, Daniel, is that when people are publishing in soil biology biochemistry, they are actually putting another piece into that narrative across the discipline that's been developed since since it was founded so it's it is you know it is part of this very large picture an extensive picture of our discipline um, and that's you know that's the purpose of discipline focused journals versus um, scientific reports is essentially i would argue you know it's it's a record um, of that research in a in a rather different context so but, I mean, Josh, I can't but, answer for their ethos, but I know what our ethos uh, is, and we're we're exploring uh, that with you now. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. No, and this is and this is exactly uh, what I'm driving at. I mean, uh, you're you're the ones who can tell us what uh, soil biology and and biochemistry want and do. Um, but I, I would like to just follow up uh, very very quickly with uh, the the comment that uh, Josh made there about uh, t- target audiences and the way people read today. If a journal of your sort defines itself along these uh, sort of strict or, um, let's say, focused uh, disciplinary lines, but let's say maybe the majority of readers out there are hitting articles and not identifying them with uh, soil biology and biochemistry, and then the Authors are, of course, put into the scenario where they need to make a choice between the scientific reports and 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 your sorts of research journal. Um, the technology seems to be bringing the different players involved in very different directions. Is that not so? I think so. I think that the social pressures in many academic systems is producing one set of pressures, um, and and journals are sort of working in a different space. I think the the greatest value that I see in in thinking about specific and targeted journals is can be the quality of of the editorial process. If you send something to sent to scientific reports, which I never have, or Nature or something, you're getting editors who are not expert in your area, reviewers who may have little connection or a lot, but much more of a grab bag, 
at SBNB, you're going to get reviewers and editors who, who know the field and can do a more in-depth and, and thorough job in helping make your work better or in identifying places where it might be weak. But if there's problems in your paper, you shouldn't want it published that way. Because once it's published, it's locked in. I mean, the process is designed not just as a filter. And I think that's how too many authors look at it. It's just a barrier to get through as opposed to a polishing process to try to help make your work better. And perhaps we should just say that other journals are available. Scientific um, reports mm. was just plucked out the air. There. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, there is no shortage for large journals <laughs> that publish across many fields. Um, right. That, that, that was just a name, clearly. Mm. Um, but is there anything then that's lost or does it not matter when um, you can probably assume that there's a fair amount of expert readers, um, assume as an editor and assume as an author, who may not really identify this content with um, soil biology and biochemistry. In other words, since, as Josh made so clear, the days of picking up the journal are gone and the large search engines are here, you'll still be clearly reaching if you've done your title right and your abstract right, uh, you'll still clearly be reaching the right people internationally, mm-hmm. but there may not be this identifying factor or maybe also this um, the sense of ethos that we've been talking about. Yeah, that's a piece from soil biology and biochemistry. I think there still is. I mean, yes, I say you can sort of miss where a paper is published. I don't think it really works quite that extremely. I mean, I had made that point to highlight that in many ways, the, the focus on journal and impact factor as an author is, I believe, somewhat misguided. But SBNB papers do typically have a, a style and an approach and a, and a definition to them, perhaps, of why something is, say, an SBNB paper instead of a microbial ecology paper, for example. Right. So there is something definitely to be said to uh, know your journal before you submit yes, and know also yeah. and know also the reviewer circle. I, I would like to just sort of close up this this mm-hmm. uh, talk. About, we, we've we've spread from the reviewers, but just to briefly get back to the reviewers, um, if you're submitting to uh, an SBB, then you know that. Um, there is a specific reviewer circle there who are not going to necessarily be so wide flung as uh, as in other journals. Um, an interesting uh, study was put out just year, this year by uh, Cambridge University Press um, called Reading Peer Review. And there they identified many of the points that reviewers typically bring up in their reviewer reports. And uh, five of them, just to run through them extremely quickly, would be data. So all the things that... Uh, refer how did the data is presented, how it was analyzed, the field of knowledge. So knowledge claims, positioning of ideas, interpretation of the literature is a big thing. The methodology. So points of statistics, experimental design, omission, which I hardly need to <laughs> comment on, things omitted. And lastly, and this one is, it shows up in practically every review, language or expression. Um, in your experience at... Um, soil biology and biochemistry, do you see some of these major points sort of confirmed or um, 
would you have anything to say about how the review process might move more smoothly if people were also aware where reviewers' eyes are going? I think different reviewers aim at different things. Um, and I think as editors, we will sometimes select reviewers based on if we think there are issues of different sorts. You know, I'm, as a person and from my background, very focused on kind of the big story element. So I will always look at that sort of, how are you framing the problem? What are you drawing your conclusions? Are you closing the circle? Um, so some of my reviews are fairly short when I've done ad hoc reviews as a reviewer, some of them go on for six pages, you know, going into all of those little details you hit on, methods, data interpretation, are you being clear in how you're explaining something? Um, and so it can be quite variable, but those are all, all the things that are ultimately important. I yeah, focus I mean, on story, but the data have to be solid to have a good story. Sorry, Carl, go ahead. Yeah, that, that's right. I mean, the things you've just listed, listed there, Daniel, are essentially some of the things that a competent review will cover. Um, because, again, it, you know, it's all aspects of the paper are being looked at um, at different levels. So it's about to, again, you know, does the introduction set the scene appropriately in the context of the journal, etc.? Does it pick up the appropriate extant knowledge around this area? Then, you know, are the aims and objectives um, appropriate? Are they proper hypotheses? Not, I hypothesize I can use a microscope to see very small things. Uh, you know, scientifically testable around that. Methodology, for sure. Could the reviewer replicate this experiment on the basis of this section or not? Results, again, you know, are the appropriate, is the, are the results being accurately and appropriately described? Again, not in great detail, but to build the narrative that the paper is also developing, the discussion needs to be sound in those terms. And I think the stuff that we've been talking about earlier, which is sort of at the higher level, you know, is there a nice story and all these sorts of things there? This is this is just one aspect, but the, all these technical aspects also need to be looked at, which is also why reviewing is, you know, quite an arduous task. And perhaps that could take us on to another thread about the business of um, the depth of reviews that are required and how long they should be and how long they should take, etc. This is something else that's um, a continual sort of discussion between authors, reviewers, and publishers. You know, authors want their things reviewed very quickly, but reviewers need time to do a good job. Publishers want fast turnaround for their for their homepage. Again, there's this there's this sort of in, implicit tension, inherent tension here between these processes. And yeah, that's I, that's one thread that I'd, I'd I'd like to follow up and and please, Josh, uh, do mm -hmm. if you, if you want to because that's a, a, precisely the sorts of dynamics that I think need to get out into the open so that all sides, in your case, as you're saying, the publishers, the reviewers, and the authors in this case, can understand where each are coming from. Yeah, what I find is, and 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 I'm guilty of this as well, is that as an author. I want my paper turned around as quickly as imaginably possible, or maybe even a little faster. I want to know. As a reviewer, I need the time to actually read this, do a good job, slot it into my otherwise busy life. And so journals and authors are pushing for faster and faster and faster. 
and reviewers are are squeezed in that of well you want it back in in two weeks well i think i'd better say no because i can't quite do that um as an author it might have taken you a year or five you know who, who knows to do the research it certainly should have taken you several months to actually write up the manuscript after you've processed the data and now after you've taken your time to do this great job now hurry up everybody else um sauce for the goose sauce for the gander people reviewers need time to do their job well and authors need to be sensitive to that this is another one of those sort of career side business side things that are finding their way into the science i mean josh you you make it there perfectly clear in the fact that you know how can you expect that of a reviewer who is serious about his or her work. Um, I mean, that's what reviewing requires if a study is serious and, and, and needs the detailed work. As, in, in the same sense as we were talking before of people trying to get into the high impact factor journals when their audience actually lies elsewhere. They're just looking at the numbers and trying to advance their career. These are unfortunate developments. I agree with that. Uh, but also remember, I think Remember that reviewers are us. They are your your friends, the people you have beer with at conferences, and they're just as busy as you are. And also, when you when the tables are turned and you are a reviewer, and you might be thinking, oh, I know, I could be writing a paper rather than doing this <laughs> wretched reviewing stuff because that's what my bosses want. But just step back a moment and think again about the part you're playing in the scientific process because by doing an effective review, you are reading somebody else's arduous work, considering it, contributing to, to that process, and in doing so, will be learning. You've learned what they've done. You'll be learning and thinking about ways of um, perhaps even integrating what they've done with what you've done or, you know, somebody's paper you'd read three weeks ago, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's the, there's, there is an, there's an inherent altruism going on here, but it's not quite altruistic in the, in the one-sided sense because – as an effective reviewer, you are gaining a great deal by being part of that process. You're learning um, as well. So, and over over a career, over a lifetime, um, it it does tend to balance out if everyone plays the game. So, yes, you spend time reviewing other people, but other people spend time reviewing you. And in the long term, that is tremendously powerful and beneficial. Um, the problem is that you know the short term drivers mm. often subvert this process. <laughs> I wonder if the balance of benefits could be, uh, as you were saying there, Carl, that it would seem that the benefit is larger on the reviewer end because he or she is clearly, you know, getting the cutting edge, the things that aren't even published yet, and able to think about them in connection with perhaps other things that weren't previously published, maybe because of his or her review, et cetera, et cetera. I wonder if the ba this balance of benefits uh, could be reassessed if we took Josh's view of reviewer reports. I mean, Josh was earlier saying, I see it as an opportunity. It's, it's a way of writing up my ideas and putting them before a respected reader and getting the feedback, which as as you say, Josh, has more often than not actually been constructive to my work. Even when I wanted to scream and 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 curse, yes, every comment I've gotten, you know, it's like, how did that idiot not see that? And it's like, well, was it really the idiot's fault or was it mine? Okay, let me go back and visit this. Um, but mm. yes, reviewers also do, as Carl noted, have the responsibility. And so part of that is trying to be prompt. 
um, which means like when you get a request to review, if you're gonna decline, just take the two seconds and click decline right away so that the editor can go find another reviewer because we don't want to burden reviewers by inviting 23 of them when we really only need two. Um, and when you've agreed to review, you know, don't wait until you just get that you're a week overdue and to start thinking about it. I mean, there's these responsibilities all over the place that we all need to be attentive to for the whole system to work to support all of us because we all benefit when, when the conversations are effective. And the other really important thing I would I would stress is that if you have agreed to review and you something's happened and you're going to be running a bit late or whatever else, or it's more complicated than you thought and you need more time, all you have to do is just keep the conversation open with the editor. Let them know. And if everybody knows what's happening, then, again, things are likely to work much more smoothly. It's It's not knowing that's a problem for the editors and then for the author you know and for the authors who are getting in touch with the editors saying where's my reviews you know i put this in months ago um see if everyone again just keeps this thing human these these processes more human i think we'll all benefit much more because Mm -hmm. things will be smoother and so for example when a reviewer is being late as an editor i'm thinking okay i sent them three reminders um, so do I send them another one and wait, or do I give up on this person and invite another reviewer who now will have two or three weeks on their natural timeline, and they may also run late. <clears throat> and so it puts everyone in a bind when the reviewers aren't talking to us if they're having problems. And so, yes, Carl's absolutely right that keep the conversation open. It's okay to contact editors, it's okay to contact the reviewer back and harass at times. Um, But the more we remember that this is all us, it's all the same group of people doing this. It's your friends and colleagues. The system works better. In the interest of humanizing all of this, as you two are doing so wonderfully, I'd like now to turn very solidly (laughs) to the editorial side of things and speak about actually your sorts of work and what you do. Um, I suppose I'll I'll begin uh, at you, Josh, and feel free also to go (laughs) back and forth from there, um, uh, Josh and Carl. Uh, but uh, my my question to both of you would be, and give us a bit of a sense of your working day, or if you think on slightly larger terms, your working week or month. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what what part does uh, soil biology and biochemistry play in your lives? What sorts of things do you find yourself doing for it? Um, give us a little bit of an inside view, if you might. Well, SBNB has evolved its editorial system so that as editors in chief, now we. F- do an initial screen on all the manuscripts that come in. And so we're doing a quick triage to filter out the papers that just clearly are not appropriate or are not ready. The others we pass to the the chief editors and associate chief editors who then process those manuscripts. And we each do some of those ourselves. And before we moved to the, the triage system, did a lot of that typically several hundred a year. So when a paper comes in, you know, I initially look at it, is, you know, is the language okay? Um, is it appropriate for SBNB? Uh, is the story appropriate? Is it at all workable? 
If the answers to those are no, I will just send a quick rejection. If it's yes, I'll pass it along. Um, but it's just all that chronic, and it's not really a day job. My day job is as a working academic at a university. Mostly this is evenings and Saturday mornings for me. Yes, that's the thing. As I said right at the very beginning, remember that the editors um, are only human. Um, so, well, I'm I'm now an emeritus position, so um, I'm supposed to have more time to do these sorts of things. But of course, you're never more busy than when you retire. And so I'm still a, a practicing scientist in the sense of um, legacy papers, but also public understanding activities and things like that. But SBB takes so. But the interesting thing is, since I've switched to this mode, actually SBB takes up a lot more of my subconscious time in terms of thinking strategically around how we can improve the journal and deal with many of the things that we've been discussing already um, in this podcast. So it's uh, in, in our particular journal, Josh and I also play this higher level role like that. But back in the day when we were um, on full uh, editor manuscript handling and decision-making process, then yes, that was always really uh, an out-of-hours um, activity. So that's something else to remember when you are engaging with editors um, is that you know they, they, they are doing other things besides. Um, so you have to allow for that. And certainly I have a, you know, a serious rule of thumb in that if I'm in any doubt about things that are written in review or whatever else, need to think about things, then I will wait a day or two and sleep on it before I press send or go um, around that. So very important to be you know, to have a, have a considered process going on. Mm -hmm. Is yeah. this, um, th th that's an interesting point. So that uh, you allow yourself time to um, let these ideas sort of soak in to go over the various angles that you might take on an experimental design or the claims for significance or whatever. The, the, these things can't happen just at, at the instant, if it passes, of course, that first filter that you were talking about. Yeah. I mean, let's be clear. It's not like, you know, everybody should agonize over every word <laughs> and decision, et cetera. But on occasions, you know, I suppose my, my message is that nobody should be in a hurry. Because when we're in a hurry, accidents happen, <laughs> you know, and um, that's something else that we'd always try and encourage with with our with, well with our students and and, and peers and an SBB audience. Um, quality and consideration is the number one criterion, and that's 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 our ethos. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I also always remember that while reviewers may be anonymous, as an editor, my name goes on whatever I say. And so I will also sometimes try to take the extra little time to make sure that I'm being clear in my messaging and I'm being politic. My normal writing style is very direct, and that sometimes isn't quite appropriate. Um, but my name goes on it, and I have to stand behind that. And I have had to write the occasional, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, I, I misstated that. I'm sorry you, you were offended by what I said. Um, but that's just, that's humanity. Uh, you know, you try to make up for the mistakes you make. And, and as authors, remember that editors and reviewers do both make mistakes. And if you want to call us on it, just be polite and, and cognizant of 
it, we're not out to get you. We might have just you know, misread something or may, made some error and we might be willing to fix it. But we're more likely to do that if you're polite about it rather than if you send a letter saying, you know, you idiot, how could you have missed that? And it's like, I don't want to deal with you. What, what, what excuse could I come up with for saying, no, I won't reconsider, as opposed to, oh, yeah, I think I could reconsider that. Let's take a second look. Again, it's the about dealing with humans. Also- yeah, the author is probably also well advised to go over five times in his or her yes, head whether, exactly. whether or not this is a mistake on the other side. Absolutely. But it's back to the, the role playing that we discussed right at the beginning, Daniel, you know, in the sense of if you are appealing on a manuscript decision, then read the letter you've written as if you were the editor and see, you know, is this going to work? Um, mm-hmm. Yes. So Would you want to get this in your inbox? Yeah. Um, one of the really humanizing factors that I've n- noticed in, in, in both of your cases is the fact that you are practicing scientists. I've spoken with other editors at larger journals where um, they are full-time editors, have, um, of course, backgrounds in science, have been in original research, but have left that and, and gone down a new career path. Um, could you maybe say something about where an author is perhaps more likely to find the one or the other type of editor? And and if there's anything different to be then considered in a submission, if you're dealing with an expert in the field practicing in your same area, as opposed to a full-time editor who has perhaps a wide base of knowledge. I think most specialist journals and almost all society-based journals um, use working scientists as part-time editorial staff, who many of whom do it purely voluntarily. The, the people who are leading the journals might get paid basically a stipend rather than a salary. Uh, where they use professional editors is going to be at the really big journals and things like Nature, PNAS, I don't know, maybe some of the Journal of the American Chemical Society, some, you know, those kinds of huge operations might have people who are kind of professional editors at the managing top, but I'm not even sure about those. Yeah, and I think you'd have a a rather different conversation with editors of those sorts of journals versus Mm -hmm. the niche specialist journal, journals such as soil biology and biochemistry. I mean, as we stressed Mm -hmm. at the outset, you know, we very much consider that the journal is part of, of 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 our community um, in this in this area, and I think that's what you know that that's the ethos, and that's what makes it that's what Josh and I are comfortable with. Absolutely, I don't work for Elsevier. I work for the community of soil biology around the world. Even though the journal is owned by Elsevier, and I do have to report to them, they're not the community that I really am, am valuing. No, it's 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 our, it's our means to an end. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, and, and, and that brings and that brings me to your wonderful um, article, uh, editorial mm-hmm. perspective: um, how to avoid having your manuscript rejected. <laughs> One of those wonderful titles, and 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 it clearly speaks directly to this ethos that you're you're both talking about. Um, you you state very early on that um, we primarily work with authors, but we ultimately work for readers yeah mm-hmm. so this states clearly the the perspective that i would probably be willing to generalize to a fair degree of the specialist or niche journal but indeed and we've had a lot of uh, positive feedback 
both from authors and reviewers for SBB, but also from other journals um, saying, hey, is it okay if we point our readers to read this article because we think this this, this fits our criteria? Um, well, Forest Ecology and Management simply took the entire editorial <laughs> um, and just adapted pieces of it for their own for their own. They crossed niche. out soil and, and wrote I, forest. <laughs> pretty much, and you know, I thought that was great. You know, <laughs> I don't. You know, I didn't do this for you know as as a research article. It's like you want to basically plagiarize my entire text. It will serve readers and 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 authors. Go for it. I entirely think it will. And this is why I want to draw attention to it. I'll also link it um, to uh, this podcast so that people get reading it. It, it, It's really the sort of um, message that should come out, I I would say, at the top of the submission guidelines for any journal. Uh, Submission guidelines are there. There's mission statements. You can get at any journal description an idea of what you should be bringing there and what not. But your clarity and your straightforwardness in this article make it so that really, I think, any author will hear it and then be able to decide, submit here, not submit here, and make a pretty good decision, I would say. Great. Thank you. Yeah, so that's, uh, that's, so. that's the guidance, you know. Read this article. <laughs> Sometimes you wonder whether, they, whether uh, authors have... I mean, it's a treasure trove. There's so many great things in there. For example, I'll just quote one of the many places that I could about uh, titles and the um, abstract and then the first paragraphs, yeah, as, as a, or even the first paragraphs of the, um, the discussional conclusion. I mean, these, these essential moments in your article. And, and here I quote, every reader reads a title. Many readers skim highlights. Some readers look at the abstract, while some may skip straight to the conclusions. If any of these components disappoint, a reader may ignore the rest of the paper. And those readers are the readers later on if the article is published, but they're clearly first and initially the editors and the reviewers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Think about it. You know, your title should be poetry, really. (laughs) (laughs) It should also be clear in telling me what is this paper about? But that's the first talk of why should I read this? I mean, authors write because they need to get published, but readers don't need to read. Readers choose what to read and you need to engage them. Yeah, readers don't read so that authors get published. I mean, <laughs> exactly. Right. If we want to draw the logical conclusion, that's just not happening. <laughs> Actually, no. readers are, re- are readers are reading for their own research purposes, and this exactly. is one of those flips. If we get back to the role playing issue, um, one of those flips that I would say, and this comes out clearly in the article. Um, that every author needs to do. You bring in a classic example where I think this really illustrates the point. Your research probably began as a grant proposal. That grant proposal is not going to serve anymore when you go and try to share the research with other people in the community who want to use it for their own work. You're dealing with two texts that, as we would say in linguistics, are generically different. They don't have anything to do with each other. You have to change the message. You have to change your view of the audience. You have to change everything. Yeah, I think one thing we we reject a lot of papers that were probably the research was probably funded to address local environmental problems. And that's fine. But it's a terrible introduction when you come to write a paper to an international fundamental science journal. 
You know, we don't care about your local environmental problem the way your funders did. So you need to sort of rotate the storyline 90 degrees to show why the basic science is relevant everywhere. Um, you know, we just had an oil spill off the coast of California. So you can study the, the new, you know, Huntington Beach spill, but it's not that different than spills that have happened in the South China Sea, I'm sure, or in the Gulf of Alaska. Oil spills happen, and we can learn about oil spills. So you can do your work in a place, but ultimately that's not what the story has to be about. That's where you did it, not the who it, who it is. And also that sort of language almost invariably sets the, 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 the frame for what's going to be a report rather than Correct, a piece yeah. of scientific writing that has incision, has discussion, has development of ideas, mm-hmm. etc. cetera. Um, yes, science needs reports, but um, you know, the, journals like SBB are not really about about that. We're about advancing and developing the discipline, and we're trying to provide a framework and a forum for that to happen, um, both in the formal scientific paper sense, but also we have the the publication modes, the vehicles for more mm-hmm. review or discursive or perspectives type um, exploration of ideas and things. And speaking of ideas, another major point that the article brings up and, and really caught my attention is the idea of um, an hypothesis or a question. <laughs> um, <laughs> this this is great because uh, you can really notice again that there's a lot of authors out there who aren't noticing that the value of their research is what other people understand from it, not merely, as we've said a few times now, lists of data or results. So that comes out in the question. Why? Basically, why? Why did you do this? I I think a lot of people say, you know, we hypothesize that whatever treatment we imposed will influence the outcome. It's like, well, that's not a hypothesis. That's a truism. (laughs) Yeah, we know that. It will almost certainly do that. But what does that mean? A good scientific hypothesis is a credential is a statement about how you think nature works that you're going to try to falsify and test by doing that. And so we will learn useful things regardless of whether you falsify it or support it. And there's, and I, I think as authors, we don't like to be wrong. So we don't like to falsify our hypotheses. That was our pet idea. But we're going to be wrong. So get used to it. That's a good paper. This is what we thought. Yeah. And gosh, we were wrong. That's way cool. There's a story there. And it's a better one. And oh, yeah, we supported our hypothesis, actually. And remember that a good hypothesis will also have a sound mechanistic reason mm-hmm. behind it. And that your particular experiment and so forth in this paper are actually unpicking those mechanisms, not another mechanism that might be related. So again, we often see hypotheses being framed, but then you go off and measure something else <laughs> <laughs> and sort of try and try and tangle it all together at the end. That that doesn't work. Of course it doesn't. That's that's a, a good definition of not being clear. <laughs> um, that's one of the things that people mean when they say p- being clear. I would imagine, yeah, mm-hmm. that you stay on stay on topic, so to speak. Mm-hmm. I wonder what you think also of um, this idea that 
open or explicit questions or clearly stated hypotheses are, um, from what I hear and from what I read myself, often not there. They, they seem to be avoided. Um, and, and, and please uh, correct me if I'm wrong, if, you, if your experience in editing is actually that you see them very clearly stated and, and, and often there. Um, but from again, from from what I've gathered, they 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 are often missing in that form. And uh, Bradley Alger, who's just published uh, uh, last year, uh, defense of the scientific hypothesis, mm. so an entire book about hypotheses. If people want to uh, read about them, he, he has an interesting take on this. His explanation why they're not made so explicit is that amongst other things, one of them being imitation, um, scientific writers, especially early career, just sort of you know, what they've read is how they write. Mm -hmm. Um, But more explicitly, he goes on to say that these are avoided because in scientific um, thinking, there's a culture of evasion, as he calls it. And his argument is that, of course, positive data are subject in many places to a publication bias. Falsified hypotheses, as Josh was saying, are considered in a sense failures. You want to sort of skew it so that it turns out to be positive. There's the sense that I'm risking something if I openly state my claim and then go on to openly test it. I think that's true. I think we see a lot of of stated hypotheses that are very are very nebulous or are simply predictions of what the data will look like when they come out. Um, and I think there is a, a fear of of being wrong. And um, you know, I know at least in one area that I've worked in personally, I've gone through about three ranges of explaining why you get a burst of respiration from the soil when you wet a dry soil. I've been wrong several times. But in fact, the huh, the mechanism we thought was involved is not the important when it looks like it may be something else actually makes a better paper because it's intellectually engaging and challenging and in proving yourself wrong, you're probably proving other people wrong as well. And that makes a powerful paper, not a weak one. Yeah. And um, potentially quite a challenging one when the reviewers get it. (laughs) Yeah, that may be. Quite right. So, yeah. (laughs) But, But yes, I mean, again, if it's, this is how science advances, isn't it? You know, you 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 have a rational hypothesis that's rational on the basis of of, of extant knowledge, and then if you mm-hmm. explore that and find that it's not the case, you're rejecting it. Then, you know, that's really important. You can't, you know, proof only exists in mathematics and and alcoholic beverages. At the end of the day. <laughs> so again, you know, we, we get the occasional manuscript where. The, the concluding sentences, you know, we have proved this, we have proved that, but no, not really. It could prove you're wrong, but that's about yeah. the limits of it, yes. One of the other, uh, one, one last thing I wanted to pick up from, from the article was the idea of a poor presentation. Yeah. Um, going everywhere from... <laughs> the bane of our lives. Being... <laughs> well, well, then this is a topic. This is definitely a topic. <laughs> Going everywhere from figures that are multi-colorful um, and too colorful and impossible to read, all the way down to you know, simple matters of formatting. Now, as somebody who teaches writing at a university, th- this this really warmed my heart to hear this because when I tell students uh, these five points of formatting are necessary, I won't read your work. I'll get about fifty percent of the people who do it right and the other 50% bang, uh, 
banging at my door saying, yeah, but <laughs> obviously it really matters. Yeah, absolutely. And one of the reasons perhaps people don't understand is as to why it matters, why we need things in a specific format, et cetera, et cetera. So this is with there are rules here um, that sort of form the framework and you can you stick your creativity on top of that. But is that if there is a consistency and coherence in the structure of the manuscript, et cetera, et cetera, it makes the process for the editors and the reviewers considerably more straightforward because they they kind of know what they're dealing with in terms of the actual process part of the procedure back to versus the, the creative and intellectual part of it. And if we have to mess around dealing with novel formats or haikus or whatever else and uh, things like that, that distracts us from being able to get to the nub of what needs to be assessed here in, in, these, in these manuscripts. I agree it's, with that. There, there's so much published that readers always you know, are doing you know, fast skims of titles of papers to see, do I really need to read this? And so weird formatting, weird structuring, poor presentation means people are much more likely to just go, eh, nope, and not look at it. So it, it hurts the author ultimately more. And uh, <laughs> I mean, to, to get back to uh, Carl's uh, point there mm -hmm. of, to get to the creativity, we need to understand the process and to have a regularity in the text in all areas from the formatting and the fonts all the way up to the sections and the argument and the structure. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's, it, I mean, it, I suppose it goes in, it, without saying now that, say, let's, the sonnet is a highly constrained form of poetry, but in the hands of a Shakespeare becomes one of the most creative things that has ever been written in English. So there's no need to feel that you're being somehow, you know, burdened with these technical matters. These technical matters are your, let's say, resources to doing your most excellent work. Most yeah. of our authors aren't Shakespeare's. <laughs> so just a, a plea one of my my real hobby horses is this business of um the the tyranny of color that has now entered the publishing arena mm -hmm. with, the, with the advent of computers you know there's this there's this seminal work from many years ago of um how to present scientific data that you know in, in, entirely using white paper and indian ink and um but the the the, the answer to color is now we just get so many awful colored multicolored yellow lines on white backgrounds red and green spots all over the place remember that the proportion of the community are colorblind they're not going to see that etc etc so again publishers are trying to do this in terms of guidelines and things but this is a bit of a it's still a bit of a of a, of a loose territory and again authors really need to be looking at their figures and thinking is this as clear as possible um, you know, I know personally, I would like to go back to black and white only. I think that would make a big difference. <laughs> we hear that not all the authors of S, B, and B are um, Shakespeare's. That's <laughs> all well and good for sure. I, I, I would be very remiss, though, not to bring up the issue of language, which is also mentioned in the uh, article. 
the language of SBB is is English. Wonderful. Yes, we're sure of that. But what I love is the idea that American and British standards are accepted. <laughs> Americans may spell the um, the element aluminum as they like, and we prefer, and they may prefer also their shorter sentences. And here we here we here we get to the quote. The U.S. literary tradition looks back to notably laconic authors such as Mark Twain and Ernest Hemingway, while British literary models such as Jane Austen and Thomas Hardy wrote longer and more elaborate prose. <laughs> uh, what a wonderful bit of literary history here in science. <laughs> Josh and I had a lot of fun with that. <laughs> we did. <laughs> very and, good, very good. And I think it is true. You see British authors typically writing with a different type of voice than American authors do, and they're both fine when they're done well. Yeah, and we'll publish both when they're done well. <laughs> and what would you say to uh, another voice or other voices uh, by non-native uh, speakers, uh, L2 speakers, as we like to call mm-hmm. them in, in linguistics, where uh, you do state that uh, if the language does get in the way of the science, but the science is sound, you clearly want the paper. It just needs to be edited. Um, but where do, you, where do you stand there on the issue of how, what role the language plays? Well, when the language is awkward or fails of, of standard English grammar, readers will have a hard time working through that to actually get the scientific message. So yes, papers need to be in at, at least minimally acceptable standard English patterns of, of grammar and, and usage. And I don't really want to you know, lower that boundary too much because <clears throat> then you end up with too many different just ways of, you know, styles of English which do exist around the world, but they're not all easily intercommunicatable and they won't be understandable to people from other parts of the world. Everybody can pretty much read standard English. And so that's why we really try to hold the line on that to at least a reasonable level. Yes, I mean, let's be clear, we don't expect every manuscript and then every paper to be a literary masterpiece, but we do expect it to be lucid i think is the key mm-hmm. word there as opposed to literary mm-hmm. um and again you know we fully accept that the author is the author of this paper and not the editor or sub-editor or whatever else so again you know we will i will let phrasing and things through if i think they're still clear and so forth but you know we're not mm-hmm. looking to to make the whole thing monotonous so the the personality of the authors um can come through and as in life, of course, you have a, a wide variety of, of personality than that diversity. That's fine. It's lucidity that's the, the, the really <laughs> critical thing here. That's a wonderful thing to hear. And I'm sure something that lots of uh, writing scientists who are working also uh, would perhaps not have expected that. Uh, and, and, and I'm not trying to... Um, open a huge leeway here, uh, Carl, in what you said, so that people can write any way they want. Um, uh, Clearly, we're talking about scientific prose, and lucidity is something that you said is is upfront. But the fact that a voice can come through is, I, I, I would argue, from my experience, something that many authors are actually striving not to do. And that's, that's an interesting point. 
Yeah, and, I'm gonna... and, it, and it hurts their writing when they try to force themselves into a very purely formulaic structure. That's also when you tend to get reports rather than yeah. papers. That's right. So, in, in, in essence, I mean, you would want the passion to sort of, sort of shine through that had motivated the study. I mean, that, that would most likely bring out the voice. Yes, but, you know, be, be, be careful with your passion quotient when you're, when you're <laughs> drafting, you know. <laughs> so I'm just trying to make the point that, again, it's, um, you know, there, there are many ways to, to, to do these things. You, you, you have to have this balance. Again, it's about a balance between formal structure and creativity and thought process. That's what science is trying to, to get right, isn't it, all the time? Because if you become too constrained, then you will stifle innovation. If you become too loose, you'll end up with, you know, too many perpetual motion machine manuscripts coming in. But it's it's getting <laughs> that that sweet spot be- between those. And I think that Josh and I try to to well, perhaps encourage is too strong a word, but certainly you know we we're, we're happy to see these sorts of these sorts of things coming forward. Mm-hmm. And I think. Most particularly junior authors haven't yet developed the writing skills to the point that they tr- ought to try to be a little you know, clever with their writing voice. I mean, I just published a chapter that um, I was deliberately pushing a number of things, including using a word that's deeply offensive for soil scientists. The, t- the chapter is called The Democracy of Dirt. And dirt is a word you do not use in soil science. But I felt that I had the stature as a scientist and as a writer, I could get away with it. It was also a book chapter. I don't think I would have done that for a journal article. No. Um, but you need to develop your basic skills to communicate your ideas first. Once you can do that, then you start developing a little space to maybe be a little creative with, with your voice. But even then, the mission is to carry your message forward. And usually simple, clean, straightforward language is going to be the best way to achieve that. And that can be done in a way that shows your voice. I, I think you've given us some yes. some some wonderful, wonderful things to work with. This idea of the creativity on the one end, clearly in service of the clarity of the prose so that the science comes through. The different venues where you, let's say, a book chapter or a blog where you can be more creative and what is allowed then when you come back to the research journal. I think those are some very, very helpful sort of mm-hmm. framework points uh, for, for authors to be thinking about. Um, yeah. Um, good. Uh, Josh, Carl, you've been very generous with your time. I do have one last sort of outgoing question, and uh, that would be simply, what would be the one thing that you would say to your next authors, the ones who were shortly before hitting submit, let's say, at the moment, <laughs> so that ultimately they got what they wanted, and ultimately that, of course, the readers, the other scientists, got what they wanted? Read Josh and Carl's perspectives paper. <laughs> and then read your manuscript again, and then go to bed and see how you feel in the morning about it all. That works for me. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, thank you very much. That is Josh Schimmel and Carl Ritz, Editors-in-Chief of Soil Biology and Biochemistry. I'm Daniel Shea, and this is goodbye from me to Josh and Carl. Goodbye. Goodbye. Cheerio. Cheerio. <laughs>
And this is goodbye to all of you. Bye-bye, and until next time here on Scholarly Communication.